This podcast is sponsored by the Trader Funding Program by Forex Analytics. Do you want to trade somebody else's money but want to receive the lion's shares of the profit and take none of the risk? Pass an assessment with a one-time fee and trade your own live trading account. There's no time limit to pass. Various account sizes are available based on your needs, and each comes with the Forex Analytics platform and access to one of the most active trading communities in the markets for a period of time. Visit TraderFundingProgram.com for more information. Drop Markets Podcast. I'm Tracy Schuchert, and I am here with my co-host, Ralph Scholenhammer. Today's guest is legendary hedge fund manager, Bill Fleckenstein, who called the dot-com bubble in the 1990s and the 2008 collapse. He has written a daily commentary on market action since 1996, and FleckensteinCapital.com was launched in 2003. And he's also a best-selling author, Greenspan Bubble, the age of ignorance at the Federal Reserve in January of 2008, he wrote. And before we get, begin, just a reminder, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only and not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell long or short any securities, commodities, or any related financial instruments. Please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions. And with that, let's start. All right. Shall we? So there is one question that kind of I had on my mind for a long time, and I'm not sure if this is entirely in your wheelhouse. So uh, I'm not trying to put you in the hot seat here, but maybe this is something where you can shed some light on for our viewers and listeners, because that has been kind of flying around on Twitter for a while now. So the, the German stock market, for example, is running from one high from one record to the next, even though every other indicator seems to uh, show that a recess, recession is in the coming. And there is, I think, a very well-founded fear of deindustrialization. And so some people are asking, why is it possible that the stock market breaks records when industrial fundamentals uh, seem to look uh, rather frustrating for the German economy? Maybe you can shine some light on how, how kind of the stock market can be in a, let's say, this uh, somewhat complex and uh, counterintuitive uh, position. Well, um, first of all, thanks for the nice warm intro. Um, in terms of your question, I mean, we can't forget that these are markets and they're made up by the psychology and the madness of crowds. That used to be a fun, somewhat esoteric, but, but fun topic to talk about when people wanted to understand how bubbles developed and what made them eventually collapse. And really, it was a study in human nature. And you can read history of these events, and you can see how the crowd loses its mind, and you can get your arms around it. However, everyone on the planet got a firsthand experience during COVID. You see how easily something can become thought to be the truth, or in this case, the science, when a lot of it was not was inaccurate, and some of it was down, downright you know, dead wrong. My point being that human nature can do things that has nothing to do with reality. So in the case of the German DAX, I'm not really up to speed on what's been going on in Europe. So I don't know as much about how, about the sorry, the internal dynamics of the market there as I, as I may hear. Um, so I suspect that it's kind of maybe taken its cue from America a little bit and following the bond market and thinking that maybe the worst has been seen. So this could just turn out to be another, a bear market rally and, and not really mean much. Um, in the US, everything is distorted by the passive bid and structured products. The, the relative uh, area of expertise of Mike Green and, and Sem, uh, Jim Croissant and you know other people. So in the US, I know why the market behaves extra squirrely but I can't really give you any 
useful inside baseball theory for for the decks. I mean, I think if you can shed some light on what, go on, Tracy. Sorry. Go ahead. I think if you can shed some light on what's going on in the U.S., that'd be equally enlightening. Maybe I'm mean, because I'm very new to this kind of the uh, kind of the stock market is something I have okay. barely any experience with. So a bear market rally for somebody who has never heard that expression, how would you describe it in a in a in a couple of sentences? What that what that describes? Okay, so let's let's go back to the 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 uh, the, the um, 2000 stock bubble. Sorry, the, the, the bubble that ended in 2000 with the with the Y Y2K hysteria, another hysterical moment that was turned out to be not much. Um, so the market peaked in March of 2000, and it was pretty clear that the dot com bubble had exhausted itself. Well, then what happens is you get a sell off, and because so many people have been trained for so long that the that the response to any sell off is another rally, you get a bunch of people who don't know that the trend has changed. Um, not that anyone's ever sure, but, and so then you get this big rally, but it never goes back to new highs. Things to go back, get back to the way they were, then it rolls over. So the rally doesn't get as high as the old highs, rolls over, goes down, makes another low. The news gets worse, it kind of feeds on itself. Then the news has gotten bad enough, the market's gotten down enough, then they rally them again. You know, and the and and bear market rallies for whatever for a group of reasons that don't really necessarily matter, and we don't know if they're I can the ones I cited are actually exactly right. They tend to be much more violent and and much more straight up affairs. As uh, a guy who originally was my mentor back in the early '80s would say, bear market rallies look better than bull market rallies. So it's just the nature. It, it all of that kind of thing is rooted in human nature. And that's what technical analysis used to be about and all that. And, and unfortunately, it's been so dramatically distorted uh, in, initially by the passive bid and then by structured products that the market is not, I don't think psychological, understanding psychological variables helps very much right now because the market isn't really a human beast. You know, It's not really the madness of the crowds the way it used to be. So it's much more difficult to try to get a sense of where things are. And I kind of wanted I wanted to get into my favorite topic, central banks a little bit here. <laughs> okay. So we okay, so you, I kind of want your thoughts on broadly the world economically right now as all these central banks have been raising rates. And then then more specifically your I want to get into a little bit of Jerome Powell right now because so far he's raised rates almost the fastest in history. We've brought down inflation. We've yet to see a recession, and many think he's kind of looking like a hero right now. So, you know, your thoughts on has the battle been won? I just had to grab a newspaper clipping. Um, <clears throat> so, look, the reality of the situation is let's just take a step back. The, the reason we had the, 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 the stock market bubble in the late 90s was because Greenspan erred on the side of being too easy. It was nothing like QE and the madness that ensued, but the policy mistakes on his part helped foment a, a, a stock bubble, okay? It, and... Um, it ended in 2000 with the run-up to Y2K, and there was a, there was a liquidity injection for the Y2K turn of the year. It was about $50 billion. It might have only been 35 But anyway, it was enough to be the last bit of rocket ship fuel that, that took the market up in the first quarter of 2001. Then we had the collapse that was precipitated by that. Unfortunately, we had 9-11 in September of, of, of 2001. And so instead of seeing the, the economic deterioration that we were that we were involved in was starting to gather steam as a consequence of the stock bubble it was all perceived to be as a consequence of the terrorist event. So then the Fed starts cutting rates and then they go back and they make the same policy errors again, only worse. And when the real estate bubble is in full bloom and you had to be brain dead not to see this. I mean, we were getting back when fax machines were still being used in the early 2000s, 
we would get faxes into the office, you know, random faxes about people who wanted to lend us money. They didn't know who we were. That's just, they were just spewing out money. And I remember at the time thinking that who is buying all this paper? You know, we knew there's bad mortgage paper being created. We didn't know if it's the, you know, the dentists in Germany, the housewives in Japan. Parenthetically, we found out later that the same idiots had cooked it up wound up eating it. And that was Wall Street. But that's I'm getting off the topic. So what happened was, and while the while the bubble was underway, Greenspan went out of his way to say real estate can't be in a bubble. It can't, it's not arbitrageable. You can't arbitrage Portland, Maine and, and Portland, Oregon. Therefore, it can't be. I'm not making this up. These are variations of direct quotes. It's all in the book that I wrote. So my point is, they they make policy errors, and in the last 30 or 40 years, they've they've always been too easy. Then they start to deal with it. And because they've created a bubble, it doesn't take much. And then things spin out of control. In 2008, it was even worse because they had responsibility for monitoring the banking system, in particular, the investment banks that had merged with real banks. That was part of the agreement when Greenspan in 1998 helped dismantle uh, um, um, Glass-Steagall. So the Fed failed from a regulatory standpoint and from a monetary standpoint. Anyway, they created the 08 bubble. The world almost ended because all the leveraged financial institutions that they were supposed to be regulating had all the bad paper. Okay. Then we went to QE and uh, miraculously, it didn't lead to any kind of inflation or any dislocations in the economy necessarily. It made asset prices go up and nobody ever counts asset prices going up as inflation because that's that's the good kind, right? It makes their people feel better because they have more money if you're lucky enough to have money to make money. And so then then we then then they tried to execute QT and we had the the repo problem. Um, I think it was was it 18? Then we had Q, then we had COVID and we had the other QE nonsense. And now we're trying to do QT. So, but remember, Powell, back to Powell. Okay, this guy. Who admittedly has raised, did raise rates dramatically, but let's take, let's be serious. They took them up from zero. They were probably at least 250 or 300 basis points to low to start with. So, I mean, in any case, this is from the FT, July 2019. Okay. And the headline is Powell seeks a cure for the disease of low inflation. Powell, and this is quoting, we've seen it in Japan. We're now seeing it in Europe, and that's why we think it's so important that we defend our 2% inflation goal here in the United States, and we're committed to do that. So look, he's, a, he's an easy money central bank knucklehead, okay? So yeah, he did do the right thing in raising rates. Good for him for that. But to pursue the policies they did, as long as they did, and to spew nonsense like that, and I could get every other FOMC uh, 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 member probably on the same sort of verbiage, right? To think that low inflation is a problem. This this is all crap that essentially emanated most recently from 08 when the banking system was in the process of imploding and they were talking about that they didn't want to have uh, deflation. What they always do is they conflate defra deflation and depression. A depression is a horrible economic outcome, which often has deflation as a consequence. But deflation, the thing, if every if the price of everything was steady to lower, who would be upset by that? What consumer would be unhappy? You'd have to be a much better businessman or woman to run your business and, 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 and to deal with that stuff, okay? So the, the term deflation, it's been thrown about my whole investment career, and I've been at this for 40 years. There's never any deflation. There's the threat of it, right? But so look, Japan's been so supposedly going through deflation for 30 years now since their bubble blew up. And, you know, maybe robot, uh, GDP growth could be more robust. But part of the reason their 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 growth is what it is is because their demographics are what they are. Anyway, I got off on a tangent. Um, so I think Powell is, he's gotten lucky that the stock market has behaved as well as it has, partially because of the passive bid. So he hasn't really been tested. Nothing's really been broken and nothing's broken. Nothing's really forced them to have to make a decision. Do we cut and run the risk of more inflation or do we stay the course? We got a peek at what they're gonna do the first thing, 
first time things get tough last spring silicon valley bank should have been liquidated and if you were an unsecured uh, creditor because you had a deposit over the specific or sorry fizzling fbic limit you should have had to pay a price and it looked like the liquidation would have been 90 cents in the dollar plus or minus uh, and, and that's what's supposed to happen when you make mistakes. It would have happened to wealthy people. It wasn't going to happen to to mom and pop. So they already showed you. They put that 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 the the, the lending facility together, and they and that's what they're going to do every time. So unless you believe that the central banks have nothing to do with inflation, they're going to produce more of it. So I went a long way around the horn on that one. I don't find it where you wanted me to. No, but I like, so does that mean, do you think that, you know, uh, you know, inflation has come down? Yes. Yeah. Um, we've avoided a recession so far. Yes. But, you know, that's still up in the air. Um, but, you know, do you think that eventually the Fed's just going to have to accept a higher higher inflation rate than 2%? Or are you more in the kind of Lacey Hunt camp where he's expecting severe deflation? No, I think I think I think the chances of of Lacey's scenario playing out are next to zero. Um, having said that, I will acknowledge that he and Van have the best bond trading record of all time. But uh, in my opinion, uh, and with all respect intended towards those two, they overstayed their hand. They caught the trade from long term rates going basically from fourteen to zero, and then wanted more. I, and I, I don't say that to be disparaging. That's the way it looks to me. And I have, like I say, I have huge respect for both of them. Uh, I don't think they're getting the inflation genie back in the bottle. And my belief, based on what I saw firsthand in the 70s and 80s, and I was managing money in, you know, in the 80s, that the, 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 the inflation psychology is a bigger component than people give it credit for. Um, the expectations that prices will go higher, the expectations that they're not going to come back down. You modify your behavior. That doesn't mean you do something different every single day, but at the margin that happens, it gets in the collective bargaining, right? Which we've already seen uh, big, big pay increases. So I don't think they're getting the genie back in the bottle. And, and, and I think people tolerated a higher level of inflation than they think they did. In other words, the CPI painted the picture of where inflation was for the last 25, 25 years up until the last couple. And I don't, and now people are, are realizing because they're taking inflation of statistics apart so they can guess what the number is going to be so they can speculate about what the markets will do. But people are now seeing that, you know, there's owner's equivalent rent, uh, which is distorting both, distorts in both directions. But, but, um, and then there's um, this hedonic adjustments. So the CPI is, it's not a made up number, but it kind of is because there's so many adjustments to it. So I think the, they're not getting the inflation genie back in the bottle. It's coming down because of base effects. The economy is weakening. Where it's going to go exactly, I don't know. I think we'll, I, I, I do believe we're entering a recession, whether we, whether we, the problem is a recession used to be negative GDP, right? And now with the nominal so high, if, if we got nominal GDP, I'm going to make this up, let's say it's six, um, and we say inflation is five, now we got 1% GDP growth. That doesn't feel like much, but it's still, it's, it's, so we're, even if it was zero in terms of growth, it'd still feel like growth, even though it was all price, you know what I mean? So I think it's it's a it's a much trickier analysis now, and I think part of the, what's made it trickier is there's no reinforcement from the stock market. The stock market used to be a collection of, you know, millions of people making decisions, and they would see things collectively. And as the bad news was coming out, the market would be front running it, and they would feed on each other, and then people would get scared. That would modify behavior, and then you'd get, and then the recession would really you know lock in, and then we'd you know. You know how these things play out. Now, when the passive bid is there every day, buy them, buy them, buy them, buy them, it takes so much more to knock the market down and then you get the structured products. So the market doesn't that, that, that doesn't trade in a way you would expect it to if there was a recession. Now, we could wake up with a dislocation in February, for all I know, sort of like we had in March of 2000 for the COVID reasons. So a long way to say... It, it, it's trickier, but I think recession-like 
uh, uh, economic activity will be will be the feature. And if it's going to do one thing or another, it'll probably get worse. That makes sense. And what are your thoughts on, you know, the market keeps trying to price in a rate cut. <laughs> in fact, I think we have one, what the market's pricing in, 64% rate cut in March, and I think 81% in May. And yet, you know, Powell keeps saying higher for longer. We're not, you know, it doesn't sound like they're going to roll over. So what's, you know, and this seems like, I don't know, what, the seventh, eighth time market uh, rate cut that the market's priced in, and they've just ran over that. So, you know, what are your thoughts on on that? And, uh, you know, is it just, I, I, I can't figure out why why people keep expecting this. Okay, this is, this, this, this is, this is sort of like, this is the topic of the mathematician of the, the mathematicianizing, so if you will, of the bond market. I mean, let's just pretend that we don't think about the bond market in terms of pricing this or pricing that. Okay, rates move around, the yield curve changes shapes. All day long, pe people across the curve are, are making bets about whatever they're making bets about. And then some people are arbitraging the curve. And so you've got all this activity. There, I, I, I believe they're making directional bets or they are responding to some, okay, I'm happy to take you know 5% for the next two years for whatever reason. In other words, it's not really about pricing in cuts. You can make that argument because you look at what the rate is and the rate has fallen from five and a half to wherever foreign change. And therefore that implies rates are going down 80 basis points at the long end. And then depending on how you wanna assume what the curve is gonna look like, you can say, well, if that's the case, then it must mean that 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 short rates will be here, and therefore, oh, they've priced in three. It's seventy-five basis points lower. Therefore, they've priced in three cuts. So, the 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 narrative, the quote-unquote narrative, to me, a lot of times leads people to the wrong way of thinking about what's really taking place. So, I I, I think that people have been taught in the last 30 years that basically bond prices only go higher, rates only go down. And so in the post-COVID era, when, when, when they had to finally get busy and raise rates, people have learned that bonds can go the other way. Um, bond markets tend to trade in general generational swings, right? It's 40 years, 30 years. So I think we've started a long-term bond market, a, bear, a bond market bear market. So we, we you know, we, we, we peaked out last, you know, a couple of months ago or whenever it was, yeah, a couple of months ago, and now rates are rallying and they'll rally for a while, depending on the economic data and somewhere they're going to get stuck and they'll start to go the other way. And what that battle looks like will be a little bit of a function of the news. So I think it's just speculators. And because the, 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 everyone has to analyze it, they, they, they've come up with this narrative about rate cuts being priced in. I don't really, I mean, do, I don't really think, maybe some people do, that think about it in terms of rate cuts. They're just looking at the, the, the parts of the curve they care about and they're doing what they're doing. So that's my response to what what why people are pricing in rate cuts. They're just they're making a bet on the economy getting weaker and the Fed's going to have to do this. Now I don't think they have a lot of margin for error given where they've taken these rates, but um, you know we'll see how it plays out. You made some very interesting comparisons, kind of also historically to the seventies and the eighties. Do you think that this time we are in a somewhat different ball game because of high government debt, or kind of how that plays into into these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Jerome Powell doesn't have the fortitude that that, that Volcker did, in my opinion. But even if he did, there's going to be a point where the Treasury is not going to be able to deal with higher rates at some some point. So it's completely different from that in that that the, the the country obviously could withstand those rates back then because the debt to GDP was so much lower uh, than it than it is now, and uh, so that would that would certainly tie their hands. And then we've got the other problem of the deficit. Sorry, the interest on the deficit has exploded and is consuming uh, um, you know amount of money similar to the defense budget. So. Um, that will complicate their hand, um, but it, I don't think that's going to be 
right in here. I think that might be on the next go, the next up leg in rates, perhaps, or somewhere in there. I don't know. Um, you know, we'd have to get a really strong burst economic data, I think, to shift the narrative now from where people are. Um, um, but for sure, the level of debt matters here and in Europe as well. And there is no Germany anymore. I mean, effectively, there's the EU. So that's that's the problem is there's no real solid central banks and no really solid currencies either. If you because this, I think you mentioned this so nicely that the the role of human psychology and how this plays into this, so how it did in past and how it's different now. But there is a sense of if you listen to the debate uh, around the financial markets at the moment, and even if you read newspapers, there is like a in in the financial markets like a, a 1914 sentiment where everybody seems to wait for something to break or, or something to happen. Like it, it feels psychologically like there's this build up for something to happen. But nobody can really put their finger on what is going to happen. So it's it's very odd. It's not like in the 1990s where, where, where there was this expectation, at least on, on part of many, including myself, right? That things are just going to smoothly go on forever. The kind of, you know, Ben Bernanke idea, the great moderation. So things will, there will be slight up and downs, but more or less things will go smoothly for the foreseeable future because the models have become so good and there will be no other crisis. And now it seems like everybody is waiting for the crisis that is not yet really there. And, and like Tracy said before, right? So is it a recession? Will it be a recession? Are we halfway in a recession? So from your assessment, if somebody would you know put a microphone in your head and say, what do you think we're standing right now? And what, what can we, I know we don't have a, a, a magic uh, eight ball, but what do you think we're going? Is there something happening? Or do you think this is a wave of panic that will just well, kind of ebb out in the, in the weeks I, to come? I think I understand what you're asking. I, I have believed the most likely outcome of the of the post-COVID period was going to be, as they started to raise rates, was going to be stagflation. And that's mm -hmm. really where I think we are. Um, and so we have high nominal, uh, uh, you know, reasonably high nominal growth. Uh, we've got a high level of inflation. And, you know, I mean, so I, I think the economy is not particularly strong. And thus far, it hasn't gotten super weak. Again, there's no feedback mechanism from the stock market to help it. Um, but I think stagflation is the most likely outcome that we will see with a bias towards the downside on, on, on real GDP growth. Um, and I, I think part of the reason why people are looking for that accident is because the irresponsible actions of the central banks, let's just look at the last 20 years. The stock market bubble blew. They started easing. We ended up with the real estate bubble. It blew and they started QE. Now we've had a steady onslaught of QE, QE, QE. We've had 25 years where people have been bailed out or come to expect that the central banks will produce in the vernacular more cowbell, right? So everyone wants more cowbell. That's what they've been trained on. That's what their models work. For. That's how their models work. And that's what they want to see. So if you think that, that we need an accident, that everyone's cheering for the accident. So they're looking around corners and under their desks to try to find out where's the accident going to come from, what's going to be the catalyst, you know, um, you know, RRP. I mean, there's anyway, people get all exercised about all these things because they basically want an accident because they think mm -hmm. and then they can have more easy money. So I think that explains the propensity to look for it. Obviously, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of negative macroeconomic and geopolitical variables rolling around uh, that, 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 that could matter in some way. But I think um, people just want the central banks to go back to printing money because they've forgotten that the printing of the money led to the inflation that they now are, are, are worried about and are fighting. Absolutely. And I, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on um perhaps the, the, what's going on with the BOJ bets right now, you've got, you know, a, this big pile on of traders that are piling on bets that, you know, BOJ's negative rate era is ending and they're going to have to raise rates. Right. And so to me, you know, and then on top of that, you've had all, you know, the last couple of years, everybody's been piling in Japan and piling in Japan and piling all the investors. Right. And so if they do raise rates, does that mean we have a sudden exodus of the, I mean, could this potentially be a huge problem for the stock market um, as well as the currency markets? I think, I'm a little annoyed at myself. I had been 
trying to put on a long yen position in the last week or so. I dabbled in it a couple of times. Um, the yen is quite undervalued on a purchasing power basis, according to the people that I read that, that look at that. I haven't been there myself, but I've talked to people who've been there and it's, it's quite, the yen is quite cheap. So that's an interesting place to start. I believe the BOJ is moving, they're, they're, they're moving away from YCC, which they've demonstrated, but nobody really believes that they'll go on to a full hiking cycle. My, my good friend, uh, James Aitken, uh, believes that's what's coming next year. And I think people are starting to front run that a bit. And I think there's, I think there's a lot, a tremendous amount of speculative money that is using the yen and um, yen rates at, uh, for funding. I think a lot of the Japanese, I think a lot of Japanese money has gone overseas and is going to be pulled back home. And I think one of the reasons why the BOJ kind of signals hems and haws is they don't want it. They don't want it. They don't want some sort of a detonation. So they keep hinting at where they're going and then they kind of back off a little bit. I think we're headed to a full hiking cycle. I think the yen is going to be a lot higher uh, uh, a year from now. I don't know exactly how the twists and turns are going to go. They've already got inflation. And when you have inflation in a weak currency, uh, you know, you have a problem, you know, you generally have a problem. So I think there's going to be a big move to the upside in the yen. I don't, I know a lot of people that, 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 that have contemplated that think that somehow it's the end of the world for the U.S. stock market. I guess it could be. I, I, it's not obvious to me other than it would be a negative for the dollar, which could matter to bonds, which then might matter to stocks. But I don't see the yen rallying dramatically as a huge as a huge problem per se for the stock, our stock market. I mean, the Japanese stock market, I, I don't know what the valuations are like there, but I do believe the yen is headed a lot higher. Now, having said that, I'll be down four figures tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, uh, but, I mean, we have seen it come back off and we did hit, you know, it hits that 150 area and the markets get a little jittery and BOJ says something to kind of pull it back. So um, I think we're at 145 today. Yeah, that was a pretty big move last night off. Not much. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just, my sense is the trend has changed, but I could easily be wrong because if I was long it, I'd be, and it traded through 150, I'd be stopping out for sure. I, I hear you. Um, and so then moving on kind of to what, uh, what's your opinion on hard assets this cycle? I mean, if we're going to go into the recession, if something potentially could be wrong, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, do you think people should be looking at hard assets at this point, just in case? Yeah, I I've been bullish on gold for a long time, and it's worked it's worked pretty well. Um, I think that a lot of people are frustrated because it hasn't done what it was supposed to do. Should have done, should have done better, whatever. The problem is, again, these are markets, and a lot of times, you know, you nothing happens, nothing nothing happens, and then it seems like everything happens all at once, right? So I think gold has done as well as it has because. Uh, citizens of the world have voted with their feet and bought, you know, bullion. And in particular, India and China, a couple of big places with a lot of people. And and um, I think that, uh, you know, it's the, the price of gold is at an all-time high in many currencies and recently in the dollar. Um, but um, I, I, I think that there's no, there's no, there's no currency you can own as a store of value. So you have to pick something else. So I think precious metals fit that bill. Um, they're volatile, which is not fun. I know a lot of people have an allegiance to Bitcoin. I'm not one of them because I can't, I have my own reasons for not wanting to be involved there. But I think that's, that's an expression. Maybe that's a millennial expression of the same sort of lack of confidence that I have in the, in the purchasing power of the dollar or any fiat currency. Being long gold is sort of saying, I don't trust the central banks. I don't trust the government. And not in a tinfoil hat, although what we've learned in the last several years is a lot of the people with, that we thought had tinfoil hats about various different topics turned out to be exactly correct. So um, there'll have to be a, maybe a new disparaging term than tinfoil hats. But in any case, um, the uh, so I think gold is a, uh, an asset you can hold that will protect you over time from things that you that you that, that that you don't have confidence in. The problem with gold is that there's it's not quite like stocks. They don't have quite this, it doesn't have the same direct response, right? 
And so people, the, 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 human nature aspect of being a human gets in the way it doesn't behave the way you want it to so you give up and then it, you know it's got a personality from a price action standpoint silver's even crazier um that tends to frighten people away and 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 so um and then of course a lot of the people that were in, in the quoted uh, quote unquote conspiracy camp about so many things own gold so it always gets tagged when they don't ever call you gold bulls it's always a gold bug i don't understand why don't we we, we never call them bond bugs or s p bugs but we call them gold bugs uh any case i think that uh it's it makes a lot more sense hard assets you know like real estate can do well but then again it's a local thing you got to know that niche and then it, they're leveraged vehicles so it kind of depends on on how the next couple of iterations of the business cycle and the central banks do how that works. I, it's less clear to me than an unlevered liability like gold seems to me like slam dunk. And what I think is different about the period we're in right now versus the past few times when gold has been at a high level like this is it seems to me there's a, a lot of non uh, sorry, a lot of uh, what people deem to be thoughtful strategists or portfolio managers who've expressed an interest in gold. And in the past, you never quite had that sort of groundswell of, you know, this makes some sense. When I first got into business in the in the early 80s, it was standard, you know, it wasn't just the 60-40 portfolio. It was, you know, 60-30, 5 or 10, and the 5 or 10 was gold. You had to have between 5 and 10% of your money in gold or some number like that that was recommended. Well, you can imagine if we started to see some of that because the price of gold's done what it's done and the ETF is net net, you know, liquidated about a third of itself over the course of the last year, the gold ETF. So anyway, long, long way of saying, yes, I'm, I'm very, I'm very optimistic uh, or uh, that that's going to be a good source of protection. What are your thoughts on all these central banks piling into gold? Well, you know, that's interesting because it's kind of like the central banks that have been buying gold are not quite in the G7 boys club, right? You know, you know, Poland, obviously, you know, China or, or Russia, but Hungary. I mean, I think a lot of the, it's interesting that some of the countries that have been really aggressive buyers like Poland and Hungary, you know, they're, they're some of the most capitalistic people on the planet now because they just came through a horrible period of communism, and socialism and know what that leads to. They can see what's happening in the West where, where, where you know, our leading politicians and academics are trying to take us down the same path and they can see that it's not gonna be good for the dollar. And so they're voting with their feet with for gold. And I think um, if you look at who's doing it, it makes sense as to why they're doing it. And you can construct the narrative like I just did that they're they're being quite thoughtful as opposed to my disparaging comments about other central banks. Now, you could also say, well, they happen to agree with my position, so I like them better. But I think the story makes that I just gave you makes some sense. Absolutely. And then uh, what? <laughs> I just had to get your opinion because obviously everybody everybody's talking about BRICS right now because they want to add all these other nations to BRICS. Of course, of you know everybody. Well, I shouldn't say everybody. Everybody on thin twits yeah. <laughs> seems yeah. to think the, that the only place you can find an expert on every every subject <laughs> instantly. Right. Many, uh, many, many, many experts. I mean to say many on many on whatever the yeah. du jour is. Right? Exactly. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, of course, there are a lot of people pushing this idea that somehow some sort of BRICS currency is going to take over the U.S. hegemony and the U.S. dollar is going to die. You know, and I, uh, you know, I have to say, you just got to look at the euro dollar market and to say that it, that couldn't even compete. But I want to know your thoughts on a, a possibility of that at all. Well, look, the dollar is seriously flawed, of course. Anybody can see that. However, other currencies have bigger, more serious flaws. Uh, I, I mean, we could, I mean, <clears throat> as bad a shape as the U.S. is in fiscally and monetarily, sorry, from a fiscal monetary standpoint and the size of the deficit, I mean, Europe has got a similar problem. So there's, there's, there's no real currency that makes, makes any sense. 
Having said that, to dislodge the dollar with the BRICS currency, I think that would, if that is going to occur, which I'm not sure will, it will take some time. There would, there will have to be meaningful dollar weakness first. That it, you, you won't like have the dollar be like it is today, where people believe in it to whatever degree, and it's the reserve currency for sure. Uh, and then all of a sudden we we slip off to oh no we're we're paying attention to the bricks we will get dollar weakness I believe the dollar weakness will become more pronounced as the deficit starts to cause problems funding it starts to cause problems you know Janet fiddled the the refunding so that we could she could sell more bills and fewer bonds and and you know they're playing this game but it's going to become stark sometime next year that 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 the the us cannot probably pay the rate of interest that the markets would necessarily demand given the size of the deficit and i think then the dollar will come under some pressure now after a period in time if it comes under real pressure that that'll be started by the end because it's, i think it's going to have a big rally you know then then the other currencies will tag along to some degree i think it would take a period of dollar weakness for something you could actually point to Look, U.S.'s deficit is out of control, and they can't they can't get it under control. To then lead to okay, we're going to shift our money away. So I don't think the BRICS, if it's going to get traction, can really get much traction until there's a period of pronounced dollar weakness for a, for for what seems to be an intractable problem like our finances. That makes absolute sense. Um. I was going to ask, so uh, with this recent rally, I want to go back to bonds for a minute. So we've had this recent rally in bonds, the yields have come down, and um, we, is there a possibility we have hedge fund managers that are sitting on about 800 billion short position? I mean, could this lead to a squeeze or is it all hedged? I don't know the answer to that question, but I would bet, given the unanimity of opinion um, about where rates were headed in the bond bear market, it got a little popular last summer. I was short bonds in a small way. I, I never really made much money on it, but I did cover mine pretty well. I'm just looking at the price. Actually, uh, price. Um, I think for sure there, was, there were lots and lots of folks short them, whether for hedges or outright. And I think part of this rally has been that unwinding and then other people getting on board, you know, looking at the first hints of any kind of employment data that looks weak. And so everyone's got the strip script. They all think they're going to be Stan Druckenmiller and uh, uh, buy the bond market when economic activity gets crummy. And, you know, and I, I, I you know, not everyone can be Stan like Druckenmiller. <laughs> that is absolutely true. <laughs> Ralph, you're up. <laughs> Um, one question. This is probably got a, a little bit of an, an awkward question, but um, who better to ask it than you? Do you think we can still trust the numbers that come out of, for example, you know, inflation numbers, uh, GDP numbers, both from the U.S., from China? Um, and again, I'm, I'm, this is not. I don't want to put on my tinfoil hat now, no. but of course, as you said before, right? It's the numbers that come out influence future behavior. So there is a a good intention, you could almost say, in trying wherever you can to fidge a little bit with the numbers, either to decrease panic or to increase optimism. Do you think that this has gotten worse or gotten better or is about the same as it has been in the past? Well, well, in China, I've never believed the numbers. Hmm. Consequently, I've never, I've tried to never have a big opinion about China because if you can't believe the data and you're not there and you don't have some special insight. So I've kind of put it in the too hard pile and not gotten mm -hmm. my feathers ruffled any which way about them. And that's been a pretty good policy to hear. When you have a command economy like they do there, for sure they're going to skew the data to try to get the behavior that they want. I mean, to think that they wouldn't would would to almost admit without admitting it that you haven't studied any of the history of what the kind of autocratic rulers tend to do. Um, as it comes to the U.S., I I I, I believe the the CPI when it was reformulated by the Boskin Commission in '96. They specifically did set out to, to try to paint it in as favorable a light as possible. That's where the substitution, the hedonics, the IOER, all that crap came from. That all came out of the Boston Commission. And they statistically lowered 
the calculation for the rate of inflation. Now, some people may say, well, it was wrong before. You could make that argument. I suspect Mike Green might make that argument, but, uh, and I have tremendous respect for Mike. I'm not, that wasn't meant to be a, a, any kind of a shot, but some people have believed that inflation's overstated as opposed to me who be, be, uh, believe it's been understated. Hmm. So I think that CPI was, was, was put together that way. And at the margin, given you know what any tinkering would probably be to try to make it look less bad not because of some nefarious uh uh cloak and dagger reason just because it's, at this moment in time it's kind of human nature right when we get into if we get into a prolonged period of inflation like the 70s then the cynicism and skepticism will be stronger and even government employees might be inclined to skew it the other way now, in terms of the employment data, now that is really garbage, you know, because of of of, of how they do the survey and all of that. So I, I I don't I think if a number was more likely to be fudged, again, not in some grand scheme. Although now we've learned that the U.S. government has a lot of grand schemes below the surface we didn't know about. Um, I don't think I don't think there's out and out manipulation. I think it's a bad number. I think it's put together wrong. It's prone to revision, as we keep seeing this year. Um, and we get these with with history. And you look back, it's never um, it's always been revised pretty dramatically. So I think the this the the the, the non-farm payroll data is is next to useless, except in the big sweep. And uh, the fact that people trade land like crazy is mind blowing to me, but that's the game we're currently having to play. It's just a, it's so mind boggling. I've never experienced what's happening over the last couple of years where you open up the newspaper, depending of course, which kind of newspaper I opened, it says everything, you know, that the, the end is nigh, we're going over a cliff as, as Tracy has pointed out, prepare for the end of the dollar. Nothing can be done. This is Armageddon around the corner. And then you open up another newspaper and that says, no, no, things are much better than you think. And people don't realize how well the economy is going and they just have well, to, to internalize. So the, so worse that it's so hard to navigate well, part what's of this, actually going on. Well, part of the skew is mainstream media. And and I, I know, Tracy, I'm preaching to the mm. choir here. <laughs> but the mainstream media is beyond worthless. It doesn't matter what the All topic right. is. You know, they're going to spin whatever narrative is favorable to the, the party in power currently. They're bought and paid for. They don't do any research. They just go with the current thing. And so if they're writing about finance, they're going to write it skewed in the direction they want. Their man's the best. The economy's never been better. And all that bad data, all lies are bad calculations. I mean, I'm overdoing it here, but that's basically their viewpoint. So, I mean, despite we've we've talked about, you know, all the supposed experts on FinTwit, I think you would agree, as I will, Tracy, um, you can learn a lot from a lot of people. You can get a lot of really good information from Twitter. You just have to be able to figure out what to throw away and what not to. I mean, it's like when we used to read papers in the old days and any article would have, the, you know, one side and the other side. And then we got to decide which we believed. And the, and you couldn't tell what the author's bias was. That was meant to be a good article. Now everything's an op-ed. You should believe what I think because. And if you don't, something's wrong with you. So I, I think that the best source of financial information, honest to God, is Twitter or X. Is that what we call it now, X? But um, X. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I think the mainstream media is useless, 100% useless on any topic. Doesn't matter what it is. No, I think it was a great answer. <laughs> okay. I think that was true. a clippable answer, as they say. <laughs> that was absolutely. Um, <laughs> so overall, so kind of, um, you know, as we wrap this up a little bit, we have another you know, 10, 15 minutes, but I kind of want your thoughts again, like where, kind of where is your head at right now as to where are we headed in general? Like what do the next five years look like to you? I think, I, I think there's a good chance that, that this next five years looks like the early part of the seventies. I've believed for some time that 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 we've if you want to find an analogy, 
we're currently exiting the late 60s and we're headed to the early 70s. Um, in some ways, we're worse off then from a from a the jet to, debt to GDP as you brought up earlier, and in some ways we're better off in terms of the, all the technological advances we've made. Unfortunately, we haven't put enough money into infrastructure, and so we don't have that that can help tame down inflation uh, down the road. But I think there will be more policy errors made. They'll always be made in the error of the side of being too easy, and we're going to get a stair stepping to the upside of inflation. And maybe not in this go round, whatever the economic weakness, however weak it gets. At some point, like I said, maybe it's the next down cycle in stocks and up cycle in rates that starts later in 24 or something like that, um, is going to, um, associated with a weak currency, is, is going to cause a real problem. And specifically, I believe that the the thing that doesn't get discussed enough is the ultimate ultimate danger presented by the passive bid. The fact that corporate America takes all the 401k money and shovels it off to Vanguard or BlackRock and then they split it up into a target date fund depending on your age and they're it's a mindless robot in there every day buying. Well, if the market is supposed to be a discounting mechanism of future events that has been adjudicated, if you will, by the by the masses, which is what passive investing was originally designed to be. But now it's so big that it's a voting machine that says every day, I'm buying, I'm buying, I'm buying, I'm buying, that net-net tends to push up. And then you have the speculative crap that is developed in the wake of the spoon feeding and the can kicking precipitated by the central banks. So you have these massive flows, which I've already noted a couple of people that are good at following it. And Tracy, you probably know some as well, others. Um, so you, you've got this fragile market structure that is unbreakable until it can be broken. And if we get into maybe not this cycle, but the, the next cycle, and, and I don't think we're going to have four and five and six year economic expansions. I think we're going to see much more what the late 70s and early 70s were, where you'd have to stop go. Right. The economy get going all of a sudden worried about inflation. So they'd have to break back. So you had to stop go. And parenthetically, at that time, what became super popular in investment circles was market timing. Buy and hold was totally discredited. It wasn't until probably the late 80s that buy and hold came back as a strategy. When I was a money manager, we'd compete in these, you know, beauty contests where you'd go in and there were going to be three firms are going to get allocated some money. And, you know, there'd be a couple of fundamental long-term investors like us. And there'd always be a market timer. Anyway, I got off on a tangent, but the, these things all developed for a reason because of the nature of the economy and the market. So it worked. I mean, market timing people laugh at now because buy and holds work seamlessly for, you know, 30 years, maybe more. Um, so I think that, 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 but if we get into a period where like, the economy really gets worse and we get layoffs and the passive bid starts to get cracked at a moment in time where it's warped prices even more, then you could have a very nasty stock market event, which could lead into the other things, which would be analogous to the 73, 74 stock market collapse. That's what I was leading up to. We can't get into major finance, stock market danger, I don't believe, without something disruptive, the, the massive distortion of the passage bid with passive bid, which is north of 50%. And just to be clear, I don't know, I don't know your 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 uh, um, base of people that will listen to this, but some people confuse an ETF with the passive bid. That's not what we're talking about. You know, ETFs might it's passive to you because they went out and bought all the stocks in the ETF, but you made the decision to allocate that day. The passive bid is mindless. Corporate, you got a job, corporate America sending that money into the stock market every day. And that that is the mindless robot that keeps prices pushed up at the margin. Sorry, mm -hmm. if I, did I answer your question? I got off on a bit of a tangent, but. So obviously that could be, obviously that would be a real problem if we started having labor problems because yes. you don't have that input. And then if people have to start taking money out up there for right oh god if it flips yeah so um again the 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 world's foremost expert on this is mike green and he he knows it way better than i do i mean when i when he first posited that and i and i learned about it three years ago it answered all the questions i couldn't figure out where the markets stopped behaving the way they used to i didn't get it and once i understood that that dynamic it all made sense to me 
And that's why most days nothing happens anymore because it's not really a market the way we grew up thinking about it. Well, absolutely. I mean, how big are those clothes? 50, 50%? Over 50%. Over 50%. I don't have the exact number. And um, again, I, I, but I mean, um, Dick um, um, Vogel, um, you know, said that, you know, passive investing would only work if it didn't get too big. Because if you're, if you're in the, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, what do you call it? The, if you're drafting behind, you know, something that's making the decisions, but you get so big that your decisions take over, the thing that you were mimicking is long gone and there's just you in there with your voting machine every day, buy them, buy them, buy them, buy them. And so that's what's happened. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, and every, every year it gets worse because these guys have captured the regulators. And so the default position is, okay, your money will go into stocks and we'll go into these things. So um, regulatory capture, as we've learned, is very big in a lot of industries and it's, it's huge in, in, in that slice of finance. Absolutely. And I could, I kind of think we're starting to see that with these in even the futures markets with companies like Citadel and, mm. uh, you know, that have all these uh, just algorithmic flows within the futures markets that are, you know, pushing this market around where, you know, it, it's not necessarily acting on fundamentals. We've seen that, you know, in the gold market a lot. <laughs> We've also seen you know, that specifically this year in, in in the crude oil market. Right. I mean, if you've been around the markets for any length of time, you know that the fundamentals and the action don't match up, you know, daily, hourly. But over, over you know, months, there's a, a stretch of time where they tend to follow reasonably. And, and that's not the case with the stock market anymore. Absolutely. So if you uh, to just leave our listeners with, you know, what, um, you know, what would you tell investors right now? You know, what should they really be focusing on, um, you know, in I, the markets, and you know, or in general? I would encourage people to read a little financial history. Learn about what the 60s and 70s were like, and and not, we're, we're not to the early 80s yet, so there's no point in reading about them. Um, you know, I really like financial history is to learn about past behaviors and what would happen and how did things how what mostly you learn is things that you think should take a couple years take eight. You know, everything seems to take longer. It's the per per proverbial expression, well, you know, not much happened and it all went at once, right? That just happens over and over and over. And so people get tricked. Oh, well, we used to worry about that, but it didn't happen. So we don't worry about it anymore. Then their behavior gets modified. Then it happens and it's even worse, right? I think people need to expect trouble. Now, I don't mean necessarily that I can tell you exactly what kind, but trouble in general, it's not going to be... As you pointed out, I mean, we had a we had a great period for the world from when the Berlin Wall fell until say 210. And, and, and really a lot of the world did well in the whole push post-World War II period. We're in a bad period. You can see the in, insanity that's going on um, where the with the universities and all through uh, education, the kind of garbage that people are being taught, the suppression of free speech, all of these bad trends are, 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 are continuing. Now, we might be hitting an inflection point. Maybe it'll turn out that the lunatics that run these universities have exposed themselves for being the, the, the racist people that they are, uh, or authoritarian racist people that they are, will help swing the pendulum in the other direction. I don't know. So there's that, which creates an underlying unease. And then there's the economic challenges. We have the massive budget deficit that needs to be financed here. Social Security is going to run out of money in the not too distant future, depending on, on, on how things go. And then there's going to be the stop go nature of economies because the, the Fed can't cut loose. It's going to cut loose and it's going to have an inflation problem. It's going to be back to it. So I think people need to think of that. The, the mindset for me is um, uh, I'm expecting a replay of some kind of, not exactly, of the 70s. Prove me wrong. You know, those little memes where they say they make a statement, say, prove me wrong. That's mine. You know, 
And that's why I think you need to think about it. And that means surprises on inflation will be on the upside. Surprises on interest rates will be on the downside. Economic surprises will, 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 will be negative. That's not every day, but we're not going back to the Goldilocks, quote unquote, period we had from when the wall fell to say 210, 215. I don't think. I would absolutely agree. <laughs> I think things have gotten way too complicated. And with <laughs> way too complicated. But um, I want to thank you for your time today. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But with that, I do want you know want to let people know how they can get a hold of your commentary and um, you know your, where they can follow you on Twitter. Yeah. Okay. On Twitter, I'm at FleckCap. Um, and then uh, my website is FleckensteinCapital.com. And uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I started writing the column in mid-96 as kind of just a lark. And um, I've been doing it ever since. And uh, um, uh, I answer questions on the website. I write a column every day about the market, although some days nothing happens. It's hard to say anything. But then I answer, answer questions every day. It's uh, uh, about 12 bucks a month. I try to price it so that anyone could afford it if they cared. And uh, I do it mostly uh, for, for educational purposes and uh, a net net. I want, I wind up giving whatever money I make out of it away to charity. So um, it's, I'm not really doing it to line my pocket. So it's a win win for everybody. So go um, check out the site yeah, and sign go. up and get some good information and help charity at the same time. All right. And I definitely, definitely want to have you back again. Thank you so much for your time today. And we really thank you. If you have any final words, let us know. <laughs> I know I, I enjoyed myself. It was fun. And uh, you keep fighting the fight for free speech and the causes that you champion away from economics. I really like where your heart's <laughs> at. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I was happy to do this with you. Thank you very much. Very nice to meet thank you, you as well. On. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Okay.